that to look at another topic on the topic of suffering and examine the epistle of 1 Peter in a series called Stand Strong. Now, as we begin this new series on 1 Peter, there's a few introductory matters I'd like us to, to look at first to help us understand it and place the epistle in its proper context. Well, first, this letter, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, which, or sorry, Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter, um, as it may seem obvious from the title. But it's important for us to understand what that means. Who is Peter? Peter, he was not only a disciple and then an apostle, he was part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He knew Jesus as well as anyone during his earthly ministry possibly could. And because of his position as, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he was well known to all. So we're going to see in this letter that he didn't have to defend his position of who he was, sort of like the Apostle Paul did in his letters. Um, because prior to that, the, for the Apostle Paul, he was the chief persecutor of the church and people were confused about who he was. With Peter, we see that people already accepted him and they were willing to listen to what he had to say. Peter's also writing this, this letter to the Jewish Christians because they had just been dispersed from Jerusalem because of the, Steve, the stoning of Stephen in Acts 9. They were scattered throughout all of Asia Minor, known as today the country of Turkey. These Christians, they were suffering, and they were in need of encouragement, and they needed to be reminded of God's sovereignty and the hope that they have in Jesus, and the inheritance given to them as children of God. Much like today, we we may be in suffering or maybe having a, a variety of trials. Let this letter of 1 Peter give you encouragement of the love of God that he has for you, or let it be an announcement of the good news of the gospel that God is drawing you towards. No matter the case, let's read God's word together this morning. Please stay seated as we read 1 Peter 1, 1 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the Father, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuous of your, your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, if tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched, inquired carefully, inquiring what a person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to angels look. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, please open up our hearts and our ears that we may hear your word preached, and you may um, create in us a desire for you, um, to, for you to grow us or to, to show us your gospel of grace for the first time. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I've been serving in youth ministry for many years, and ever since I started serving in youth ministry, I had given gifts to my graduating seniors, gifts that um, that, while, that they may have while they're attending college or going into a new career field. The first gift I usually give them is a book. Um, this book, in the many, many years past now, has been R.C. Sproul's Running the Race. You may have read it before. It's aimed at helping college freshmen navigate this new and challenging world while holding to a biblical worldview. Now, sadly, this book has been out of print for many years and has been increasingly harder for me to give. Later, I would give this book called Just Do Something by Kevin D. Young, a book about understanding and finding God's will. This past year, we gave a church to, the, um, to these new graduating seniors, New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp, a devotional which has been integral to certain people's spiritual renewal, um, not only just teenagers, but adults as well. The second gift I usually give is an ESV Reformation Study Bible, one similar to the one I have right here although it's usually in a lot better condition. Now, I use this Bible in preparing sermons and for preparing lessons. Now, this gift is the same one that I... I, uh, This Bible is the same one I use, but I hope that to them it is something that can help start a new era in their their lives. For this Bible is not aimed at teenagers nor children. It's aimed at adults, which they now are, to help them use helpful study notes and to help them be able to find God's Word in a readable manner. Now, in my opinion, while these first two gifts are great, while the book and the Bible are, the most important gift that I give to graduating seniors is a letter which I put on the first page, first blank page of their Bible, a letter which I normally call my remember letter. Now, while the personal details are always different in each letter, geared towards each individual person, and no two letters are the same, there is a constant thrust throughout all of them, a constant theme. And that is to remember what you have been taught. Remember the faith that God has brought. Now, I passionately hope that the students that I give this to read this letter and that it encourages them, not just the first time they read it, but as they may see it during the rest of their lives. Because in this letter, I urge them not just to remember the games and the fun times that we've had, nor just the events that we participate in together, but to remember what was even more important, that their time in the youth group, that the lessons that they were taught to be remembered, 
that the sermons that were preached, that the small groups in which they had um, where we applied the deep spiritual truths of, of the gospel were remembered and the relationships that were formed. This is why I usually urge them to remember that God is sovereign over all things and that they will face trials and tribulations in this life and in the coming years, but that these trials will not last forever. And though this beginning new era of their lives may be something different and a little bit scary, to immerse themselves in God's Word, in studying it, so that they may rejoice in who God is and what He has done, all while knowing that they are never alone and that their church family is always praying for them. These letters that I write are in the same vein as 1 Peter, um, verses 1 to 12. In our passage today, Peter urges Christians to remember that God has done things for them in their lives, and that He is continuing to do things. And this is the same thing for Christians today, to remember that God is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over all things. And that we must remember it when we face trials. And that we must remember to immerse ourselves in the study of God's Word like the prophets of the Old Testament. Let's look at this first item that we should remember. That God is sovereign over all. We see this in the first six verses. Verses 1b to 6a. To those who elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Though through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you rejoice. We see in these verses and throughout Scripture that God is in sovereign control over all things. In Genesis 1.1, we see that God is sovereign over all creation. And in Revelation, we see that God is sovereign over eternity and everything in between. From the first to the last, God is always shown as being sovereign. In verses 2 and 3 of 1 Peter 1, we see that God is in sovereign control over salvation from sin. We see, um, just in the verses that we read, that God is sovereign over all parts of salvation. The forgiveness of sin and its application to our account and our growth in grace is all given and controlled by God in His Trinitarian form. God the Father is the one who foreknows. Or in other words, God the Father is the one who chooses whom He will save, not based on works, not on future faith, but out of His love for us. And we see this explained further in Ephesians 1 and 2. Then we see that the person... Um, of Jesus, the Son, is He who obeyed the law, which we see in Scripture and is summarized in the Ten Commandments. He obeyed the law perfectly, and He died as the perfect sacrificial death for sin. And all who believe in Him, all who call upon His name, are saved and have eternal life with God in heaven. The third part of the Trinity, which Peter lists second, is the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit 
who is, who is in every believer, who sanctifies us, or who, in other words, changes us so that we may be more conformed to the image of Christ. So that we may grow in His grace as God has shown us. Peter wants Christians then and now to remember. To remember that God is in sovereign control over their salvation. We see in other parts in Scripture this in greater detail. In Romans 8, how God elects, and then how He effectually calls, regenerates, and then how He gives us faith followed by repentance, justification, adoption, and sanctification, all while giving us perseverance and bringing us to glorification. He is in sovereign control over all these aspects of salvation, from election to glorification with God in heaven. And following from that, He is in complete and sovereign control over your spiritual inheritance. Some of, us, some of us here, we may have inherited something before. Now, it may have been something that you actually desired to inherit, or it may have been something that you were sort of just given, that someone wanted you to have. No matter the case, it was given to you on the occasion of someone else's death. Yet the spiritual inheritance of a new believer in Christ is given it in two different ways. First, this inheritance is not given upon the death of someone else, but given to you for the death of your sin and the birth, your new birth of your new life in Christ. Also, this inheritance is something that you personally actually desire, something that you crave even though you may not even realize that you did. You may not have fully understood it. And we see this in verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your inheritance is that you are a living hope. That you are a beacon to this world of what God has done for you. And that you can and must share with others. He saved you from your sin, a testament to His love. Because He loved you before you could ever love Him. And now you have a certain hope of what God is doing now and in your future. Something that you inherited that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept for you in heaven. Eternal life with God. When you are able to worship, honor, and enjoy Him forever in heaven. The way you were meant to before sin entered this world. And as it has left us radically depraved without hope, without exception in salvation that is brought through Christ alone. This is something that we can and we must rejoice about. If you are a follower of Christ, you can rejoice not only that God is sovereign over all things, sovereign over your salvation from sin, He is the one who keeps you. He is the one who preserves you. Like a shepherd, an imagery we see throughout the Old and New Testament, a shepherd is a person who keeps and protects his sheep, even at the cost of his own life. God does not let His children fall away. You are guarded by God's power here on earth, even though you may face trials and sufferings until you are in the full embrace of God in heaven. 
This is God's love shown in a fundamental way. When we are unable to save ourselves, so God saves us. We are unable to keep ourselves from falling away, so God keeps us. He preserves us. We are unable to get into heaven on our own, so that God makes us then co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs of this inheritance, as it says in Romans 8.17, so we can be with God forever in heaven. This love that God has for us is not only to show that He's in sovereign control over all things, but that His control is guided by the love that He has for us. We may want to be in control, but I rejoice in that we are not in control because we mess things up constantly. God is in control, and if not, it would be a mess. Everything is is in God's control because He enables us to be able to serve Him. And He enables us to rejoice. And we see this in verse 6a. We must praise Him for His absolute control. We must praise Him for giving us hope and making us followers of a living hope to the world. Praise be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit for bestowing faith and hope to His children by His love. Singing songs. This is what we should be doing to praise God. Praising Him by our words, our actions, and our deeds. Rejoicing in all of these because what God has done and is still doing in us. Praying to Him with a joyful heart. Sharing the Gospel as a personal account of what God has done for His people. The word um, rejoice in 6a. It's sort of a poorly translated version into English from, from the Greek because there's so much more meaning behind it. The word rejoice, it carries with it the idea of greatly rejoicing. Rejoicing with exuberance. Rejoicing more than you may rejoice for anything else. Now, rejoicing with a passion. This passion that comes from the knowledge of what God has done for you in His life or in your life, and in the lives of all the people He has ever brought to salvation, and that He will ever bring to salvation. This is a monumental doctrine about that we should rejoice. We should rejoice for all that God has done. God's love practically applied to our daily lives, which affects His children from eternity past to eternity future. Now, Peter doesn't end there. Not only are we to be reminded that God is in sovereign control, we are also to be reminded that we may face trials. We see this in verse 6-9. through It says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have seen him, you love, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now this item for us to remember is part of the concept of God being sovereign over all. But it's from a different angle. As 
As we said before, with Peter, he was writing to other fellow Christians about suffering. That they would be facing trials of various kinds. Yet Peter does not say, oh well, you should have been trusting God more or you wouldn't be facing trials. Nor does he say, if you were worshiping God correctly, you wouldn't be having any of these issues. Or that it was one specific sin that you were dealing with. That's the reason why you were having all these trials for your whole life. Instead, he focuses not on the symptoms, but he focuses on the purpose of these trials. Peter echoes that of James. He sees the purpose behind the trials and the desired result, and that they are completely controlled by God. He reminds his readers that while they may be facing trials, these trials will not last forever. Specifically, he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, many of you may remember the classic 80s film, The Princess Bride. It's one of my favorite films. And in one of the more memorable scenes, the character Vizzini keeps using the word inconceivable over and over and over again, not truly understanding what that word means until the character Inigo Montoya looks at him directly in the eye and says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I do the same thing with the word soon. Every time Leslie or my girls hear me use the word soon, they audibly groan. (laughs) For they know that I have a different definition of the word soon than they do, than most people do, actually. The word I define as soon is not immediate, but that the event or action that it would take place, it may not be quickly. It may not even be a certain amount of time. In my mind, the event or action that would take place will be accomplished as soon as it gets here. In my mind, the word soon is very relative. The Apostle Peter, he uses the term a little while in a similar way. While on the surface it may seem like Peter is saying that the trials will only last a couple days, a couple months, maybe a year at max, in reality, in the context of this passage, Peter's actually saying that your trials will only last until your death or until Jesus' second coming, whatever comes first. So in a sense, it is only a little while in relation to eternity, which is good news. This is great news. It truly is. We as a society, we have this idea that everything must happen instantly. Everything must happen right here, right now. And if it doesn't, it's not worth our time. But this should not and must not be our view. For this is not how things occur, specifically how spiritual growth happens. Trials are not instant. They're not like instant oatmeal, instantly done, or automatic approval of loans, or even Instagram. Trials take time to accomplish their purpose. No matter how hard the trials may be, no matter how bad things may get, for a follower in Christ, these trials will end. And in the end, you will be with Jesus in a place where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief, and all these trials will be over. And we can take comfort that while the little while takes time, it takes longer than we may like, we know that there is an end in sight. And we can take comfort in remembering the purpose of these trials. The end of verse 6 and 7, it shows us that, um, it it shows us this, and as well as who is allowing these trials. It is God who is allowing these trials. Now these trials are meant for a specific purpose. Now, 
God does not tempt us. And we see this specifically, and it's an important point that trials are different than temptations. We see in James 1, 13 through 15, it says this, Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. For he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, conce- then is when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Just as I said before, God does not tempt us, but he does have our faith tested so it then can be proved genuine. The purpose of these trials is so that we would have it be purified. Like he uses, Peter uses the example of gold being purified by fire to boil out all of its impurities so it can be pure, which is what the rest of the verse is speaking about. It says this, so that the tested genuous of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This may mean we may suffer for righteousness sake, so that our faith may be proved genuine. God desires our faith to be proved genuine and authentic. Now, this idea of genuineness or authenticness, it's common not only when we're talking about spiritual things, but in worldly things as well. When I was a kid, I used to love collecting autographed baseballs. I'm a huge fan of baseball, and when I was a kid, I tried to get as many autographs as possible. Some of them proved easier than others. One of my prized possessions of these autographs is an autographed baseball baseball by the Hall of Famer, Wade Boggs. Some of you may know who he was. I got this autographed baseball on the night of his 3,000th hit down in Tampa Bay when they were still the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. I, I was able to find him in the player's parking lot and hand him a pen and a baseball, and he was glad, hopefully, glad to, to sign this baseball. Okay, And it became a treasured possession of mine. But to me, all I have is this story of that it was he who signed it. If I wanted to sell this baseball, I would have to prove that it is genuine, that it was authentically signed by him. So it would have to be put through tests. It would have to be examined to prove its genuineness. The same is true with trials of faith. We see examples of this in Scripture. In Genesis 22, with Abraham on Mount Moriah, where Abraham is tested when he is asked to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. This proved Abraham's faith genuine. And and Genesis 22 says, And the Lord said, Now I know that you fear God. His faith was proved genuine, authentic. We also see this in the life of Job when, excuse me, when God allowed Satan to attack, or when, yeah, when God allowed Satan to attack Job, and Job's faith is proved genuine as well. God uses this refiner's fire to cultivate a desire and a dependency to rely on God for all things. For this is what faith in Christ is. It's fully relying on God for the most important thing, salvation from sin. Trusting that by His grace alone that we are saved and that we desire to live in accordance with what the law has written on our hearts rather than our own desires. Testing, it can also clean out our other desires for idols like love, power, money, fame, or even family. 
and remove them as on the top of the pedestal and instead be placing God at the top where we should be worshiping Him and Him alone. And when we reach heaven, we reach a state of glorification as it talks about in this verse. So what should our response be to all of these trials of various kinds? The answer is in verses 8 and 9. It says this, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, it mentions it as it did before in the previous verse 6a and now in 8 and 9. We must rejoice. But it gives us a specific way we should rejoice. We can and must respond with joy joyfully giving God the honor and glory due His name. Again, we are to rejoice even when we, while we are suffering, even when we don't like it. We must worship God in the midst of our suffering and our trials and rest in His grace despite all that is going on around us. We must do this even when we feel like God's face is not shining upon us. And we must rest in the grace of God and trust in Him no matter the circumstance by following what He lovingly commands. The testing and and growing of our faith, it is a necessary part of the Christian life, even though it may be painful. But a lot of things in life are also painful. Just like a child growing from from a small infant into an adult, growing pains happen. But they are necessary to grow into adulthood. Also, remember what Peter said in the onset of this testing, that it would be only around for a time. In addition to this, the end result of these trials, it gives us inexpressible joy that he is speaking of. Now, joy, it's, this is the type of joy that's hard to explain. It ignites us and it, it, pers- it gives us perseverance. This is the type of joy that you get if you, are a, if you um, have had... a a child born, as when you first hold your new baby. This unexpressible joy that you have in holding them for the first time. This is even more so than that. Inexpressible in that we can't fully explain it. Yet this is what God gives us and this is what He commands how we rejoice. Because God is the one who gives us joy, we know it is from Him. Now, so far this morning, we have seen that in the Christian life, we must remember that God is in sovereign control over all things, including salvation. Also, that these trials are part of growing as a Christian. Lastly, this morning, we see in verses 10 through 12 that we must remember to immerse ourselves in the study of God's word. It says this in um, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you though through those, who, uh, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which angels long to look. Peter is reminding his fellow believers that salvation, it's progressively revealed throughout Scripture. 
The prophets of the Old Testament, they prophesied that this salvation would come and to fulfill the promise made back in Genesis 3.15 that God would send a Savior. And while they may have not fully understood what that meant, for it not been fully orbed in its, under, in its presentation, we do see it now fully explained in the New Testament. The prophets, they searched to have a better understanding of what they were actually prophesying. Or in other words, they were trying to research the very words that God was having them speak to the people. They wanted to know what God was talking about. Who was the Savior that God had promised? Who would the Messiah be? How would He accomplish the defeating the curse of sin? We see this in such passages as Isaiah 6.11 and Daniel 7.15-16. That while these prophets Daniel and Isaiah inquired, they searched, and they took their role as prophets seriously. They did so that they may let the people of God know more about the long-awaited Savior. What He would do, what His mission would be, and what the results would look like. Now, at first glance of 1 Peter, this may seem out of place with the rest of what we've been reading today. But it reminds us of what we can rejoice about. We can rejoice because in our day, in our age, we have the fully complete Word of God. The closed canon. We have everything that God desires for us to know about Him and how we must worship Him. We can rejoice that we don't need to research and search in the same way that the prophets did, trying to grapple on only tiny little bits and pieces. We have the whole thing. We have the whole pie. And we can rejoice that God has given us His Word in an understandable way that we can read it and understand it. We can comprehend that God sent Jesus to live on earth to live perfectly, obey the law, die and be rose again from the dead, to be the long-awaited Savior as perfectly prophesied in Scripture. This passage also shows us how we should respond when we are reminded about God's sovereignty over salvation, our trials, and all of history. By immersing ourselves in God's Word, His entire Word. By this I mean there is a reason that God gave us both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a reason why the, prophets, why the prophets were able to understand and discern more about who this Messiah was just from Old Testament prophecies alone. And that's because all Scripture is either pointing to Jesus' coming, His work, or His second coming. As, Timothy, as 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is, God, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of Scripture, every part of God's Word is important. Even small books in the Old Testament like Obadiah, Haggai, or even Nahum, all of these books are part of God's Word. And they are important for us to understand the whole counsel of God. Which means the Old Testament is just as important for us today as it is the New Testament. For since we have the Bible in its complete, closed canon form, we can now fully interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New. We can understand the prophecies that God spoke through His prophets. What they meant and how to apply them. We can 
empathize and apprehend the longing of the Old Testament prophets waiting for Christ to come for His first advent as we eagerly, with great expectation, await His second coming. We should act like the prophets dedicating our time to immersing ourselves in God's Word so that we may know it completely from beginning to end like diving into a pool completely covered by water from head to toe. For if you are a follower of Christ, you should not just be a New Testament Christian. You should be one that seeks to understand the whole counsel of God, a Bible Christian that He has given to us in His Word. This morning, though, we have seen that we must be reminded of three things. God's sovereignty over all things over salvation, over trials, and over the all of history. And that while we may not always be forgetting that God is sovereign, we need to be constantly reminded about it so that it can deeper affect us, to keep it on the forefront of our minds. So it can impact all the areas of our lives. So I encourage you this week, like I encourage my graduating seniors in their remember letter, And as Peter did to the suffering Christians dispersed around Asia Minor, remember what God has sown you in Scripture. Remember that He is in control of all things. That your trials and that your sufferings are only for a time. And remember that you must immerse yourself in God's Word so that you can greatly rejoice with inexpressible joy. For God loves us in giving us these things. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Holy and Almighty God, I thank You for being in sovereign control over all things. Father, this is a hard idea for us to wrap our heads around. But Father, You have shown us in Your Word again and again and again of how You are in control. And how while we may want to be in control ourselves, Father, that You being in control is, is best because of who You are. Father, we are, we are mortal, we are, we are fallible, and you are eternal and infallible. Father, we also pray that while we um, may have these times of trials, that you would continue to give us a, an inexpressible joy as we remember who you are and how you are with us through all these things. And Father, continue to remind us how we must be immersed in your word. Give us a desire to do so, that we may glorify you with our words, our actions, and our deeds. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, before we close with our benediction this morning, we are going to sing a song of response. A favorite hymn of mine called Rejoice, the Lord is King. Now, as we sing this song together, I encourage you to sing with a joyful noise. Singing out, remembering the love that God has for us. The love of our sovereign God. The lyrics of the fourth verse are this. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and Judge shall come and take His servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice. Again I say, rejoice. Now, we're going to do something that we don't normally do here. First of all, I'd like you all to stand. We're going to sing a cappella this final hymn.